Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our Good Friday service. We're going to begin our service tonight with a brief, responsive prayer. I'll say this first part, and you'll respond with the second. Our Father in heaven, Stand with us.
One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. My story is a hard story of amazing grace and of redemption. A life snatched out of despair and hopelessness in the very last moments of life. I'll tell you my story so that you might know that there's hope for you today. It's not too late. As long as it's today, it's not too late for you. I grew up in the mean streets of Palestine, Judea, and Jerusalem. My home was not an orthodox home, not a home of prayer, but it was a home of pain, a home of hurt, a home of anger. I grew up angry. Never loved, never really belonged never trusting anyone but myself. My friends, if you call them friends, they were other people with chips on their shoulders too. We were takers. We never trust anyone. That was our motto. And you get whatever you can get out of life. That's how we lived. I would steal, lie to you, hurt you, take advantage of you, You see, you had to be a tough guy to hang with us. But you were even wary of your own group. I was always living in fear, filled with anger and anxiety. But I always thought, never show them your emotions. Never let them see you're weak. I always knew this day would come. I knew it would probably end in violence for me. I was arrested, caught, red-handed, convicted, arrested by the Roman authorities, betrayed by one of my own thieves, and sentenced. I've always been angry at the hand of cards that were dealt to me. And I was sentenced, sentenced to die by filthy Gentile pig Romans. The city, it was filled with tourists and religious do-gooders for Passover week. We thought, man, there'll be easy targets for scams and thefts. It was going to be a banner week. But now, we're in the bullseyes of judgment, my partner and me. They take us to the praetorium. It's the governor's tribunal where the bench for judgment is. They're going to make an example of us. Tried, convicted, judged, 
and sentenced. They beat us. They scourged us with a Roman scourging those pigs. And they sentenced us to death on a Roman torture instrument. A cruce. A crux. A cross. The people all cursed at us on the way to a place outside the city called Skull. Golgotha, the Hebrews said. We curse them back. They hate us. We hate them back. They never loved us. We hate them. But between us, between us is a religious man. He was no ex-con, no criminal. He was a teacher, a do-gooder, a king in many people's eyes. But the mob mocks all of us, even the teacher they mock. They mock him as a prophet. They mock him as a priest. They mock him as a king, particularly, especially by the priests and the religious crowd and the Pharisees. They hated him. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we might see and believe, mockingly. My partner said, let him save himself and us too. I joined in briefly in the mocking, giving him the business. But I saw something. I saw something in his eyes. As they hated him, he loved them. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Are you kidding me? Forgive? What does this mean? Then I saw, as he looked at them, I saw the way that he looked at his mother and the women that followed him. I saw as he looked at his disciples that were there. And I saw as he loved even his enemies and cared for them. And all of a sudden, I felt something. Something moving in me. That he loved me. I'd never felt this way before in my life. I wanted to know more about this man and this love that he had. But for Pete's sake, I'm dying. I'm at the end of my life. The things I always wanted, to be loved and to be known. But my life's almost over. I said to my partner, who was still making fun of him, Stop! Stop cursing! Stop mocking! Quiet! Hush! Stop it! He's done nothing wrong. We're getting what we deserve. And then he looked at me. And I looked at him. And I knew that he loved me. And I looked at the sign that was above his head. King! Of the Jews. 
And I thought, I want him to be my king. I've never been religious before. I've never been a do-gooder. I've never known love like this. And I just simply said to him, you know, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? Because I would gladly submit to you as my king. And I'll never, ever forget his words. Truly, for sure, today, not some other day, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, that thought, he would be my king. But how? But all of a sudden, the hate in my heart faded away. And I thought, what can this mean? But all I know is he's my king. As it turned out, he died before me. He died before both of us. But his death seemed different. Somehow it seemed victorious the way he died. He died willingly, it seemed to me. He died at peace. It seemed to me. I don't know when I died. I kept blacking out. They came and crushed our legs at the end. I don't remember my last breath. I don't know when I died. But I know when I woke up. (laughs) When I woke up, I was alive. I was more alive than I've ever been in my life. And the place was beautiful. And my heart was filled with love and joy. And then I saw them. He was my king. And he said, welcome to my kingdom. Father in heaven, I thank you for this great story. And that there's hope for us today. Jesus' name, amen.
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. My name is Justice. I work for the Roman government. I'm an officer in Caesar's army, the superpower of all the known world. I drew an assignment for several months in a backwater region of Rome called Palestine or Israel. I was stationed in Jerusalem, an ancient walled city. I have observed many crucifixions, executions. They're always a dramatic and gruesome affair. But this one was different. I'll never be the same. My life was forever changed. And here is my story. Jerusalem was filled with people. It was a national holy day. Remembering the release from captivity, many Hundreds of years before, they call it Passover. The people were filled with religious fervor. And Pilate, the Roman governor, had sentenced three men to death that day. Among them, a religious leader, a teacher, a rabbi, or something. Pilate sent them to the praetorium, the general's quarters where the judgment seat was at. And there was a Roman cohort there. That's 420 men in full battle array in order to keep peace. I'm a centurion. I have command over 100 men. I give orders. They follow my commands. The criminals were all scourged, beaten with whips and rods, flesh torn away from their bodies. And the religious man, he was beaten too. But he was treated with a special level of contempt. They stripped him. They put a robe on his bloodied back. And they began to mock him and make fun of him like a king. They wove a crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. And then they began to mock him and kneel before him and call him a king. They put a reed in his hand and then said, Hail, king. We all had cruel fun with it for a while. Some of my men joined in. It was great sport with him. Finally, my men led him away to a hill outside of the city. It was outside the city gates where there was a large rock-faced outcropping. It was known in the city as the Skull or Golgotha. We Romans, we called it Calvary using Latin. We threw the cross to the ground and we pushed them to the ground and we nailed their hands and their feet. The sound of the pop 
as the flesh was pierced and the sinew and skin and bone snap. It's something I never really got used to. As the nails were driven through their hands and their feet into the hardwood. We offered the men, all three of them, wine and gall. Uh, and that's something to help them with the pain. An anesthetic. But the religious man, Jesus, he refuses it. I thought, okay, dude, I guess you want to feel all the pain. We had to tack on a sign above the cross at Pilate's command. And it simply said in three languages, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. You know, people die many ways, I've observed. Some cry and whimper in fear. Others cry out for mercy the whole time, hoping someone would save them. Others, they claim innocence to the very end. But most, most the rabble that ends up crucified, they curse at the people. The victims curse them from below the cross. And the mobs curse the criminals. And the criminals curse the mobs. It's a spectacle to behold. But always, they hate us. Romans, occupiers, ruling authorities. They spew their most vile words and gestures toward us. This man was especially hated by scribes and elders and priests, religious people. And they cried out to him, save, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Trust in God. Where's your God now? You made yourself out to be the son of God. The people mocked at him and cheered at him and scorned him. They baited him to curse back. But he would not curse them back. While being reviled, he reviled not in return. While being threatened, he uttered no threats. I stood by close to his cross. He had caught my attention. I listened to him. He was dying, but he was dying unlike any other man that I'd ever witnessed before. He cried out once. I'm thirsty. I said to the men, get him something to drink. They put a sponge and filled it with water, put it up to him for a drink. He cried out again. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. One moment he prayed. Father, why, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? It was as if he was having a conversation with God. It was like a father and a son talking. It was intimate. And it was personal. Then, strange things begin to happen. 
at 12 o'clock noon, the sky starts to darken. It's not just a cloudy day. It's not just overcast. I mean, it started getting dark. And from noon to 3 o'clock, it was like an eclipse. And that whole region was covered with darkness. And then I watched him. I watched him love the people while he died. He cried out, It is finished! But they weren't the words of defeat. But it sounded like a victory shout. Like the task was completed. Mission accomplished. And when he died, he was in control. And he said, Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Wow. It was like a son saying, I'm coming back to you, Father. And he died. He died willingly. He died purposefully. Then the ground started shaking. And the earthquake and the crosses were leaning. And the temple was shaking and some said the veil inside the temple split from the top to the bottom. And I knew this was no ordinary death. This was no ordinary man. I can't get the image out of my mind of his love for all of us and his trust in God as Father. And I kept hearing it in my mind, my heart. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And I sat there and I stood at this cross and I said to him, forgive me for what I've done. Certainly, this man was a righteous and innocent man. He truly is the son of God. Then I started praising him. And I said, praise God. He is who he said he is. Praise God. There's hope for me too. Hallelujah. The Son of God. Let's stand together.
Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in heaven's pain, His gift of love and righteousness, sworn by the ones He came to save, till all that cost as Jesus After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. few uh, dense years of earthly ministry before Jesus died, he went about healing and preaching and teaching about uh, this kingdom of God. And the way he did this attracted the, uh, the broken and the needy 
and the outcast and the nobodies. And he proclaimed blessing to them. And as he taught what it meant to be a part of this kingdom of God, there was these two categories of people that he challenged the most intensely. These were wealthy people and the religious leaders, including the scribes and Pharisees. At one point, Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And about the religious leaders, he said even stronger words, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and all lawlessness. But with Jesus... The impossible is made possible. And apparently, with him, through him, the bones inside of whitewashed tombs can come to life. And camels can walk through the eye of needles. Because when Jesus dies, we see two wealthy religious leaders step forward and claim Jesus' body to care for it. It's a bright irony on that dark, dark day that the men who step forward to claim Jesus' dead body are not family members, nor are they even disciples, but they are actually members of that same religious council that pushed for his execution. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These were two men who seemingly had everything to lose in openly following Jesus. But they had been compelled by him, by his grace, by his power, by his compassion, by his authority. And remember, it was Nicodemus who had come to him at night and he said those famous words, you must be born again. And then he further explained that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I imagine that as Nicodemus saw the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, he thought back to that conversation, and finally his eyes were opened, and he believed. And it seemed as though Joseph of Arimathea was already a believer. Yet these worldly pressures had suppressed his faith. That is until Good Friday. That is until he saw, he witnessed Jesus die for him. Jesus' death broke the dam inside his heart and faith flooded in, making him public where he once was private. Making him bold where he once was fearful. Making him reprioritize everything that he held to be most important. So Joseph worked up his courage, Mark tells us, and he went to the already exasperated Roman governor Pilate and, and dared to make one more request. He asked him if he could have Jesus' body, that he could bury him properly. I'm sure Pilate was confused and shocked by this. Was this lone Jewish uh, religious leader who was actually a believer in this man that his counsel had just tried so hard to kill? 
But Pilate granted Joseph's request. And Joseph personally took down Jesus and wrapped him in linen. It was a risky and and costly move for Joseph. I mean, to to associate yourself with this convicted criminal was, was risky in general. I mean, that's why we see all of the disciples flee whenever he's arrested in, in fear. But more specifically for Joseph and for Nicodemus, because of who they were, this conflict between Jesus and, and the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, had been boiling up for years and had just come to this dreadful climactic end if you're a pharisee like nicodemus and joseph then to bury to honor jesus by burying his body and caring for him in that way is to give up your security and your position your respected position and to go over to the losing side or at least it seems like the losing side at this point in the story but not only that the gifts they offered, this, this tomb and all of those spices, it would have cost them financially. But more, more than all of that, I think, I think the most profound reordering of their priorities that we see is in recognizing what this act meant, just what this act meant, would mean for them as Jewish people during the Passover. I mean, to handle a beaten, crucified, pierced corpse would have been messy and unclean physically. But more than that, for them, according to their Jewish customs and laws, it would have made them unclean ceremonially, which they would have avoided at all costs any time, but especially during their highest holy day of the year. This was Passover time. And because they had made themselves unclean through this act of love and devotion for Jesus, they wouldn't be able to participate and the most important and long-standing celebration of their people. This would have been unthinkable unthink- to them as religious leaders in the past. Unthinkable. But after watching their Lord truly live out every one of his radical teachings about love and obedience all the way to the end, It fanned the flames of their own love and their own courage. And they wanted to honor him whatever the cost. And though they would have given up their fellowship with the Sanhedrin, through this process they gained fellowship with each other. These two reluctant believers, mourning Jesus' death together, grieved over their part in it. And now, in this somber and sacred task, they're united in burying the body of the Messiah that they had longed for, that they had looked for, and that they had found, but had been too afraid to acknowledge. And what they probably didn't see at that time was that they weren't just joined to each other through Jesus' death, but they were also united to that, that Roman centurion. They were now brothers with that convicted criminal thief that hung next to Jesus. Before, they would have viewed that centurion as, uh, as a, the face of the pagan oppression that they had. And they would have viewed that thief as unclean, unworthy sinner, nothing more. But on Good Friday, 
all of these men unexpectedly shared something in common. Faith in the Son of God. And this faith ushered them into a new community, marked by a new covenant relationship with God. A covenant brought about by the very death that they had just witnessed. The new covenant in Jesus' blood which was poured out. You see, even though Joseph and Nicodemus would be ceremonially unclean for the Passover, which, remember, was Israel's celebration, remembering their liberation from slavery through the blood of lambs that had guarded them from the wrath of God. Even though they couldn't celebrate that the way they always had, they had just buried the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's precisely why Jesus took that ancient symbolic meal of the Passover one last time with his disciples and he imbued it with brand new meaning. That he would be the Passover lamb and this broken bread, his broken body. And the cup, his shed blood, poured out for us to form a new everlasting covenant. And it's the same simple yet significant meal that we will take together now, tonight. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper tonight, deacons are finding their place at their stations now. you listen with me just for a moment. It's in the midst of this Passover meal that Jesus has early with his disciples in that upper room that he takes some bread and he blesses it and breaks it and he gives it to them. And he said, this is my body. That's an amazing thought. And then he takes the cup and he gives thanks. And they drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you, for many. When we take this bread, we're making a commitment We're saying, you are my life source. You bore in your body my sin. And I want you in my life. And when you take this juice, you say, it's your blood that was shed for my sin. And I receive it into my life. Because my only hope is your life in me. It's commitment, allegiance, and confession of our faith. Father, as we take this supper now, 
I pray that, Father, that we would not only, we would contemplate it, and then, Father, we would commit ourselves as we receive it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come by, receive the elements, and go back to your pew and your chairs, and then I'll lead us in taking the supper together.
take eat. This is my body. This is my blood of the covenant. Praise his name. Mark says, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen.
going to close our service with another brief responsive prayer and then if you would in remembrance of the cross leave in silence your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven amen